Namaste, motherfuckers. And welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 67, Chrissy Griffith. Chrissy Griffith is uh, a musician. Uh, she's in uh, Fear of Music with her husband, Nate. She plays bass, plays the Tina Weymouth part. Weymouth, is that right? I think so. And uh, she also has her own band, Lady God. Uh, she plays bass and writes songs and all of that. It's a kind of a stripped-down rock and roll trio. I saw him once uh, at the Broadberry. Very good. And we get a little sample of their music in this podcast. <clears throat> Going into posting this, I've had a lot on my mind. Um, a couple of different streams that I really wanted to align, I, I wanted to bring together. And this might take a little while. This might take 10 minutes or 15 minutes. But I hope you can bear with me because uh, I think it's valuable. But, you know, if you don't want to hear what I got to say, you can skip ahead to the conversation. Um, it's probably about, yeah, it is 18 minutes in. I know this now because I had to pause this and uh, go back and record this because the thing froze for a sec between me saying how long it was going to take and starting this little thing in which I say I have been reading National Geographic. And there was an issue about firsts, and one of the articles was about art. And I think that's enough to fix this gap in the recording so that you understand what I'm talking about. I hope so. Articles in it is about first art, beginning of art in, uh, in our culture. And according to this article, the first symbolic etchings, representations that have been able to be found in any kind of, you know, archaeological evidence is uh, some etchings on a piece of ochre that is like 75,000 years ago and was found in the Horn of Africa. And it's very, very old. And, you know, various people have kind of said, well, it's nothing but doodles or whatever, but that's kind of been discounted and said, no, this is a work of somebody who very deliberately sat down and tried to create art. And... Yet, uh, the interesting thing about this is that that sort of thing disappears from the archaeological record, uh, paleontological record, whatever, for about uh, 50,000 years until it uh, <clears throat> appears again in the caves, in uh, the Chauvet Caves in France, which is, there's a really great documentary called uh, Cave of Forgotten Dreams by Werner Herzog about that, if you're curious. But the, uh, you know, the idea is that you know, for long stretches of time, since we have become biologically, anatomically modern humans, you know, and that means that those people 75,000 years ago had the same brains that we have now. Like, we haven't developed different brains. But for whatever reason, people of the communities or the um, cultures then had the wherewithal, the inclination, the instinct, or the time to create art and then stopped for a long time. And uh, the theory in the article is that this has to do with the uh, size of the population. And when populations were larger, they uh, generated art. When they were smaller, they stopped generating art. And you could think, at least I did, that that's probably got a lot to do with uh, the larger the population, the better job they're doing of surviving. Therefore, you know, there might be surplus and therefore there might be time for somebody to sit around and work on art as opposed to struggling to survive, killing something, collecting something, 
building fires, all the things that you got to do when you're living like that before you've mastered the environment to some degree and created shelter and, and sort of domesticated animals and domesticated crops. You're really living hand to mouth. And if there's a lot of people, then there are there's time. There's people supporting other people to create art. And uh, and they may even approve of that and, and identify with the artist, not as other, not as lazy guys sitting around making art or lazy woman sitting around making art. But, you know, one of us who is this is their job. This is the, the thing that they contribute to our culture and our society while we are picking food or gathering nuts or killing animals or tanning hides and all the other things that it's just as valuable for this person with the creative symbolic talents to be contributing this stuff and then i think perhaps as as things get more desperate and more hand to mouth that there's a resentment that grows up for that person who is just making art just making art and they seem to not really be contributing that much therefore maybe we shouldn't even feed those motherfuckers you know if they can't if they can't gather or hunt or tan or do something useful to us surviving then they gotta go and maybe they don't kill them but maybe they just stop feeding them and then that sort of that sort of uh, talent that sort of gene dies out for a while because it's not a survival gene it's it's the thing that we get to when we get past survival when we transcend survival so you know as now that we have a really strong tradition of art going back you know a few tens of thousands of years we uh we also have the you know development of domestication and agriculture and things that made culture stable and therefore made it possible to keep people alive who might only have the talent of of intellectual or creative pursuits as their thing to contribute. So, you know, what I think that's a very interesting thing to contemplate as I like looked out my window during the snowstorm we had recently <clears throat> and I was watching the guys who work for Dominion Virginia Power outside uh, repairing the electrical transformer in the snow and there's like 10 guys out there and two huge trucks. These things that we have invented, that we have created as a people that are capable of doing kind of really daunting work. You think about it, a big fucking trash can sized transformer being lifted up in the air and then wired into the grid. You know, and as I watched this, I saw, okay, there's a main wire that comes to the, the pole and then that wire goes through the transformer. It connects to this little, there's like a switch that turns on and then the power goes down into the transformer and the transformer distributes the main electrical uh, signal into all of the other wires that are going to my, our houses. And I thought, wow, you know, I know these guys are getting paid to do this, but I could see them saying it's too fucking cold or it's too snowy for us to do this tonight and we're going to come back. But And I felt implicit in what they were doing out there that it wasn't just about the money, that they cared about the people along the street that didn't have electricity and this bitter cold and probably didn't have heat. So they were going to stay out there till the job was done. At least that's how I felt watching them. And what I felt implicit in this is that this thing that we take for granted all the time, especially for people who are creative and uh, intellectual and stuff, is these guys, these talented, skilled, smart guys that are out there keeping the lights on, that do these jobs all the time. And we have to value those people. Just if we expect them to value the people who spend more of their time in the abstract things that are contributing or being contributed to culture and I think we lose that from time to time and I know that like 
you know, they lost it in the communist countries. They, they said, you know, this is the idle bourgeoisie is the guy that's got time to write a poem or create music or create art. You know, fuck him. He, he needs to get a hammer or a sickle and, and do something constructive. And I think we, we've gone through, you know, with economic scarcity and the unwillingness of people to support art programs and music programs in schools. It's like that kind of attitude. Like what real value is there in this creative artistic expression the thing is, is that I think we have to contemplate and remember and be mindful of is that, you know, it's the same talent that makes you either come up with, you know, beautiful music or art or writing or drama or film that it takes to be smart enough to figure out how to put an electrical transformer together and how to get all, you know, to be creative enough to create that technology. I mean, to foster creativity is to foster practical things and things that don't appear to be practical but are very important to keep the spirit alive so that it doesn't die out and remove sort of the spark of a culture and a human culture. And, you know, those of you who listen to this a lot know that, that my stance is that I'm very interested in breaking down identification with genetics, you know, because I'm a white male. I... It doesn't mean a goddamn thing. It doesn't mean that I'm not allowed to participate in things that are traditionally female or traditionally African-American or traditionally Asian or Native American. That's They're all strains of human culture. <clears throat> they all point back to the source that we all came out of, as far as I'm concerned. And I, I think it's much more interesting to see how I how we identify and how we connect and, and what we share and what is expressed in all of these things, instead of to get very territorial about it and say, this is mine, you're not allowed over here, this is disrespectful to my culture, whatever. I, I Look, I respect the subjective experience of that. I respect being part of that, that being painful because of what it's connected to. But I'm here to say that it'd be really great to get over that kind of pain and that insecurity about feeling that something's being taken from you if somebody who is not necessarily brown or part of your culture or a, you know a female or whatever is connecting to something that you do because it's through identification that we really are able to support each other and help each other and you know this somebody I was listening to children talking about seeing Selma and how initially they did not understand the principle of nonviolence they really believed eye for eye you know that that if you kill somebody one of us then we should kill one of yours and what Martin Luther King and the people that he was working with rightly identified, in my very strong opinion, and what Gandhi identified is if you're facing superior strength and facing superior numbers, fighting them physically gives them an excuse to, to wipe you out. But if you, if you resist them nonviolently and you stand in their face and make them recognize your humanity and make all of the other peoples watching this drama play out recognize your, your humanity, you gain far more support in people identifying with you as, as a victim, as, a, um, as someone who is being maligned, as someone who is being oppressed. Fighting you know, just creates an us and them mentality. And honestly, look, if you look at the numbers... The uh, us of Caucasians versus the them of minority is still a huge imbalance. So you really would want all of these Caucasians to identify with and be on your side if you are someone who doesn't identify as a Caucasian. Because if you just want to go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, the numbers don't work out, you know? And that's just a fucking practical fact. And I'm not trying to say anything there or other than, like, it's far more powerful to get 
people on your side than to place them into them into the them category. And uh, you know, I I've I've spent a lot of my life uh, as a sensitive Pisces kid identifying with oppressed African American people and oppressed women. And um, you know, many people who know me know that I I've probably behaved in ways that uh, were unconsciously or unintentionally oppressive to women in my life, but I've been really tried to be mindful of that and and learn from my mistakes and, and be the best man I can be. Um, so when I when I see strong you know movements in uh, you know in our culture and as reflected on what I see on Facebook and what I see in the news talking about white privilege and talking about men doing this and 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 what you know male oppression and male dominance and patriarchy and all of that stuff i start to get offended i start to say hey wait you know i'm not that kind of guy but now i recognize that you know under underneath that cry is a, a asking me to identify asking me to say look not only do you have to not be one of the people causing the problem you have to actively help us support what is still extant in our culture that oppresses uh, brown people and oppresses women. And it, it's not enough for you to just be one of the guys that isn't an oppressor. You have to also, you actually have to join the chorus of voices saying, hey, this stuff is still existing and we really need to be conscious of it. And it's not, I mean, it's necessary, I think, in order to make the people who are who are perpetrating it to be conscious of what they're doing. Because I think a lot of it comes from unconsciousness, a lack of mindfulness. It does not come from a deliberate desire to fuck with, hurt, or oppress people. It comes from a selfish desire to get get yours, you know. So, you know, in the midst of this uh, conversation with Chrissy, we get to this part, you know, of talking about what Lady God, what's that about? Is it about the goddess? And I try to remember this Joseph Campbell thing where he's talking about um, how, you know, in primitive cultures, in, in our very, you know, pre-agricultural, pre-industrial, pre-city-state kind of people, that the men, as they come along, have to be brought into service of the tribe. They have to go through a process of initiation. They're scarred. They're altered, whether it's circumcision or actual cutting of other body parts or tattooing or burning. Um, Joseph Campbell's opinion is symbolically that tells the man that you are no longer the wild creature you were born as you are now a member of this tribe. And they don't do that to the women necessarily because it's already a given that the woman is what it's all about. And as I said that and she and I were talking about it, I realized, well, God, there's a lot of evidence that that isn't the attitude. And I was, I've been trying to kind of figure out, well, how is that what what is that about and you know is is there any con continuity between if that's a truth that Joseph Campbell's talking about and where we have been in and out of culture and i think there is and and what it is is that as we did become agrarian people and we started to control nature we just you know our our cultures that were getting good at that also felt like the woman was something that needed to be controlled and i think it initially came from a desire to protect this you know, resource, and I don't, I don't like any human being probably likes being referred to as a resource, but imagine that, that, that a lot of this stuff that is oppressive to women came out of a desire to protect and control the most important aspect of the culture, the most important thing, the life-giving, the life-nurturing, the gestational womb, you know, in, in the same way that they were doing that to the planet, you know, doing that to the earth around them uh, and the farming and 
and uh, you know the control, you know, the attempt to bring nature into the service of the tribe instead of living that hand-to-mouth experience that I talked about earlier on. Um, I, I I don't know. You know, that's it's important for me to look at this because when we when we just surrender to the idea that evil is being done and bad is being done, then then it's other and we don't know how to identify it and what to do about it. But when we see how it could just be good intentions gone wrong, I think we have we can do something about it. Then we are able to alter our thinking and alter our behavior and alter our perception. And I mean, I know that I'm in the midst of understanding just how selfish I can be when I think I'm just being a good, hardworking guy that's taking care of business. Because I get into this groove, and you know, it is probably a little easier for me as an educated white male than it is for many other people to uh, do what I'm doing. And now that I'm in here, I'm like, you know what? Everybody else can just work as hard as me and try as hard as me, or they can fuck off. And I don't, you know, I don't want to be like that, you know, because it takes all of us. We all have our struggles before we even can get to focusing and working. And God knows I did. I mean, it took me until I was 38 to really say I've got to stop fucking up and chasing buzzes and chasing fantasies and chasing things out in the nightlife of the various towns I lived in and just start showing up for work and putting one foot in front of the other, putting one dollar in front of the other in the bank and all of that. And I got I got to there for me, you know, and and that is valuable. And I'd like to stand as an example of someone who was a fuck up and has their shit together now. At the same time, I gotta have compassion for the people that are not there, one way or the other, and can't feel like they can't get there. And um, I'd like to be able to be supportive of those people. So, you know, my I, I, my practice right now is to be able to hear these cries of anger and injustice, and um, all in all the forms that they take, and identify with them, and say, "I hear you, and I I know how you feel. What can I do to help?" And uh, it's, this is a struggle for me because, you know, it's just like in personal relationships when, you know, my girlfriend is telling me how bad things are and I just want to make it, I want to fix it and I want to make it go away so that we can relax and enjoy our lives. It's, again, very selfish. And one of my favorite thinkers and writers, Brene Brown, is like, you know, it's just about holding that space for somebody. And we both, we all need that, men and women, we all need that space held for us. You know, we need people to take the time to listen to us and not try to fix it and not try to tell us to feel or think a different way, just to let us work it out, you know, and you can work it out better when you got somebody to talk to and that'll listen and care. So, I mean, that's the longest intro I've ever done, but I wanted to get all of this stuff out and, uh, hope you, uh, hope you can dig it and appreciate it. And, uh, let's get into Chrissy. Yeah. Okay. So, Hi, how Hi. you doing? <laughs> good. How about you? Pretty good. Pretty good. It's been a uh, it's been a nice dreary cold day. There. Have you been inside most of the day? Um, I've gotten out a couple of times. I thought I had a meeting this morning. That's actually tomorrow morning. A uh, work meeting. Yeah, uh, just a just a chat with somebody. And uh, you know, yeah, the the solar powered cells are not really fueling the way I'd right. like. <laughs> I don't think our brains can make uh, what is it serotonin or or some shit we need to feel good without sunlight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I okay. found a good sunny window um, that I think is going to sort of reverse the whole winter yeah. uh, sluggishness if, if we have a couple of good days. 
You can lay in the window like a cat. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've been doing. Like yeah. every day, I just get up with the coffee and just sort of grump around there in the sunlight for a while. And uh, I think that's necessary. Like, I would almost go to a tanning salon to get that if I could not change and turn orange. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe if there was some sort of tan light that you could have, you know, in your home. There are. You, yeah. you can use those grow lights you use to grow weed like that. Oh yeah, they, yeah. There it's you go. the same um, light. You know, <laughs> just might attract some unwanted attention. Yeah, no, I just sort of read this headline about this guy that got busted for growing okra inside of his house. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't read on, but I figured. There's some other trade like that that's surprisingly, it's not an illegal plant, but the growing of it out of certain circumstances is illegal. And I think it, it, it's not okra; it's some other vegetable that you, that's that the whole market is tightly controlled in some part of the world, but. Whatever. What good is that story without facts? I don't know. It must be one of the high dollar ones. Some, yeah. Some asparagus. It isn't. It's something you would never think. It's it's laughable, you know. <laughs> but yet, if you you growing contraband like ramp or something like that, you can get. In trouble. Oh yeah, you know, sure. I, it's not ramp, but it, it's something like that. Yeah. So we were just talking about Lady God before I turned on the uh, mics, and I saw you guys at was it called Instant Pleasure Fest? Yeah. Yeah. I liked I liked what you guys were doing. I I said I, it was a sort of thing. I liked that sort of thing, and and by that I mean, you know, stripped down garage kind of thing with a, a certain a sort of sixties vibe. Would you say? Is sure. That intentional? Yeah, I think it's it's coming out of that a little bit. Um, yeah, we're definitely sort of drawing from a lot of the primal rock and roll kind mm-hmm. of areas. I'd say, yeah. Is there anything? Is it totally? Is, is it a? Is it meant to be um, an homage to that kind of thing, or is it like you're really pulling? You're you're trying to do something that's current, but in that um, form. Like, are you thinking about imitating that style or imitating that look? Or um, yeah. I don't know how meant to be any of it really was I mean we kind of became a band even on accident mm-hmm. um you know I just went to record with my friend Russell's friend mm-hmm. um and I had never met this person before and uh you know we got in the room together and it was just like hey let's cut all the bullshit like let's not let's not kind of go for that making music for other musicians mm-hmm. kind of thing and um you know, so we were sending each other a lot of demos, and it was like, you know, we're, I think we're still trying too hard to be too smart. Like, let's mm-hmm. let's peel some of that away, too. And and so, like, yeah, we got, like, really spare, and that's where I feel like the better stuff started happening. So you had songs worked out, and you wanted some assistance recording them, or you had... Um, well, uh, Sky, my bandmate, had a bunch of stuff that he was down there to work on and I mean I don't know how formed really any of it was but as they were trying to do it all themselves you know Russell uh, who's running the the Moonwalker studio out there um, convinced I don't know Sky... about Moonwalker studio oh, okay. uh, tell me about it real quick without yeah it's um he's got a tape machine um, well, he had a Tascam 388 tape machine, and he was just sort of has a real simple setup out in Mechanicsville, and it's out on a lot of land. It's like this old, I think, plantation farm or something, mm-hmm. but he's got a modern house 
out there too and it's kind of like I don't know you sort of sit around outside there and you know work on your work on your ideas and and get your lyrics where you want them and you I don't know you just start to get better and better ideas and Mm -hmm. I joke around that there's magnets under the ground out there (laughs) (laughs) there's something I don't know something happens that's awesome Uh, so you you can kind of step out of like the studio context and and hang out like outside or in the yeah, because it's even, I mean, the act of driving out of Richmond, mm-hmm. and, you know, as soon as you turn onto his street, like, there's, you know, there's no more street lights, there's no more tree. I mean, well, there's no more, like, a bunch of buildings, it's all right. trees, and, you know, it smells like, I used to like to go to the greenhouse sometimes, you know, on my day off, and just kind of breathe the clean air mm-hmm. for a little while and walk around like that, um, and it's kind of like that out there, It's it's the same thing where... You know, it's just sort of fresher air and, um, you know, kind of um, get away from your mm-hmm. element for a little while. Yeah, get out of the, the usual context. Yeah. It has you thinking about specific things and you can yeah. get on a different track because you're out of that context. Yeah, uh-huh. I think I, I leave a lot of my lists behind mm-hmm. that I keep rolling through my head. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so he, um, he called in... A drummer and a bass player and I was the bass player and you know we were just gonna go work on the session mm-hmm. and it just kind of I don't know weird things happen and we just sort of were all clicking in this way that felt like well maybe we should do this all the time maybe That's maybe we have to be a band now so you you guys just were you were just kind of removing what wasn't necessary to get at what you were doing yeah. Yeah. What wasn't what was superfluous? When I looked at it, you know, I'm just kind of schooled in this this putting rock into categories and fashions and aesthetics, and I thought it was just you know kind of straight out of the um, the garage retro thing. Like it's almost like some bands start with that and then they write songs. You know, like yeah. they just want to look like that and 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 play those guitars and wear them up high and all of that and. And be part of that scene, but is that was that sort of more of is that more Russell is Russell the guitar player? Uh, Russell was the engineer. He's the engineer for the the session. Um, yeah, the guitar player's name is Sky. Scott. Sky. Sky. Okay. What's Sky's full name? Uh, Sky Handler. Sky Handler. Yeah. And is he in other bands? Um, he is in this really great band from Boston called Viva Viva, and um. I guess the reason that I came to know him is he was in a band called Razor Rectors mm-hmm. with uh, some of the guys that are in Avers. Um, and Avers played that. Did they play that night with you guys? Or Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I used to be in a band with some of them uh, called Hypercolor. Or maybe I still am. I don't know. Um, <laughs> we haven't played in a while, but who can say? All, all bands that I need to look into have no context for, know nothing about what uh, give me a little context for your involvement with that band. Is it was it Hypercolor? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. Is that a local band or? Is... Yeah, um, it was uh, me and Adrian, Alex Spalding, uh, Creemore played drums, Hugo Haggy played guitar, and um, yeah, it was sort of kind of this similar like really washy psychedelic kind of dream pop thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, My bloody Valentine at all? Yeah, like uh, or like a really uh, kind of Jesus and Mary Chain, Mazzy mm-hmm. Star, uh, super laid back, sparkly, 
desert kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I like yeah, the that sound was, of that. Yeah, that was a really fun band to be in. Um, and so, yeah, we hadn't been playing as much, and so I kind of missed, uh, you know, that was where I was starting to feel a lot more creative. And so, you know, as soon as as soon as we started doing those those sessions, you know, I started writing a lot more and it was like this crazy thing started happening where I get up every day and I just start filling up my notebook. And um, you know, it was like I don't know, this was a real split year where I hadn't really come up with much and then the summertime came and it just flipped. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, there it all was. You hit a, a vein. A yeah, war. yeah. I found all the ideas. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where That's they were. Awesome. They were hiding out. So I guess I got a lot of a whole lot of filling in to do because I mean I just became aware of you that night, pretty much. And I guess maybe I maybe I'd seen you at Bamboo before that. But are you like a Richmond native or? Um. Well, I've been here since 2002, and uh, you know I sort of tried a couple of times being in this band and that Mm -hmm. and you know I just uh didn't really find my um you know I didn't really feel like a a real sense of belonging I don't think you know um and so you know I don't know how'd you get here in 2002 what was the a uh, series of failed plans. Oh yeah. Uh, kind of. <laughs> I don't know, that's man. R- that's r- yeah. No, I thought I'd go to. I was living in Chattanooga, Tennessee, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, had. I think it was probably my fourth or fifth like community house. Mm-hmm. You know, where you have these great ideas, and everybody says, "This time we're gonna keep it clean," and mm-hmm. you know, this time everybody's gonna not just gonna, gonna move in. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you've got four people that live in the living room, and mm-hmm. you know, then TVs are flying out the window, yeah. and you say, "Well, <laughs> you know, at 21, Beer I said to myself, I'm getting too involved. old for yeah. this." Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, uh, so I thought to myself, I'm going to go to culinary school, and uh, I had a place to stay for free in San Francisco, and so I was like, "Well, yeah, yeah, I'll just—it'll be the easiest thing in the world. I'll just." Uh, save some money and move out there and it ended up being very expensive yeah and uh i didn't really have anything at all at that point in my life and so i thought well i'll move in with my mom in hampton because she's here in hampton Mm -hmm. uh and i'll just get a waitressing job and i'll just save the money and i'll go out there and it did not happen like that at all and i (laughs) you know after people trying to like hire me as a nanny and all this crazy stuff i ended up uh, working in a kitchen in Norfolk, and so I was driving from Hampton to Norfolk every day, and I said, I don't think I'm going to be able to survive this very long. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I moved up here. I knew some bands uh, just from when I lived in Tennessee, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, so I met some people to sort of get me get me Were going. Were you already playing bass in, back then? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been... Uh, I've had a bass since I was very young. I think I've been a bass player for just a few years, but <laughs> um, yeah, I've I've been in a lot of bands and stuff. What is that Talking Heads song called? That that the really <laughs> you know one of the most famous ones where he's dressed up like Buddy Holly, uh, Once in a Lifetime. Yeah, yeah. I saw you guys at uh, at Hardywood. I think, and when you w- launched into that bass line, I, I could tell you were a real bass player. Oh, you know, <laughs> thanks. You're you're good. 
you know, you're like you're solid. Like there are a lot of people that play bass because they're not good at uh, guitar. Yeah, I might be one of those people for sure. I, I definitely don't, don't play you, guitar. I think you might be a good bass player, yeah. actually. It was pretty solid. Um, so who did you know uh, from the Nash- in Richmond, the bands that you uh, can, knew from the Tennessee days? Oh, man. Um, the only people I knew, I, I wouldn't even say well. I just, I, I really dug their band. They came to Chattanooga, and we just didn't even know what to do with them. They were great. Um it was in 1999 um, that I saw them, but it was it was a municipal waste. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I remember seeing them play, and I was standing next to my friend, and some strange reason, um, I leaned over in one ear, and my friend leaned over in the other ear of this guy, and both said, that guy sounds like Sam Kennison. <laughs> and he looked at us both like... Like we were fucking with him, but it was just we both came to that conclusion it was a at the same time. Yeah, no, it totally was, man. I'd, I'd go see Sam Kennison's band. In, so your taste in running, heaven. Yeah, he, he did <laughs> sing some. He he sang a version of Wild Thing. You remember that? No. It, yeah, I don't know who the band. I think the band was like Tommy Lee and various other like ni- 80s, 90s metal. Oh, that guys. sounds a little yeah. bit horrifying. It was because he didn't really <laughs> sing it. He like. He just kind of screamed yeah. like he does. But are, are you originally from Chattanooga, or were you just living? Um, I got there uh, by way of Asheville, North Carolina, from uh, Middle Tennessee. Uh, I was living, I went to high school in a town called Pulaski, Tennessee, not to be confused with Pulaski, Virginia. Uh, and then I grew up in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. And both of those towns are side by side, and they sit right on the border of Alabama, like... Uh, Right next to Muscle Shoals, Florence, all that Tri Cities, they call it. And how was that growing up in <clears throat> in that part of the? Uh, that's pretty deep south. Yeah, um, it was really isolating. Uh, I don't know. My my parents weren't from there. I think my mom had uh, had distant relatives there, and she inherited their land, mm-hmm. you know, or, or she was taking care of her grandfather. Who had land there, and um, yeah, it was strange. I mean, you were definitely. I mean, I don't like to use language like this, but there was just sort of one kind of person there, mm-hmm. you know. Homogenous. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and it was just you know, if you weren't part of the Baptist church and getting your hair permed and and suspending things in Jello, then you know, <laughs> to hell with you. <laughs> so what did that? Is, that's where you grew up. So yeah. That's your, and, but you knew you that was not you, that you were not Baptist Jello suspender. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, or or happily, I would mm-hmm. argue. But <laughs> that just wasn't your thing. What, and what, where did you find the thing that you know in that? How did you find something else down there? I don't know, Is there man. A record store, or a, you know, the cool kid under the bleachers at the high school. I don't know. Like when the first. Uh, like, when Operation Desert Storm happened, I don't mean to, like, date myself or anything, but I was 10, and my mom and I got all into writing anti-war poetry. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I remember thinking, you know, I don't think any of my friends are doing this, you know? And and so I just, uh, I spent a lot of time reading and, you know, just sort of exploring the, the books and the mm-hmm. records and, you know... Just all the all the weird old stuff around the house and. Was your mom a, a former hippie? 
or something like that. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. They, there was a little bit of bohemia in there, but, uh, it gave way to that weird, uh, seventies religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You find Jesus after <clears throat> you find psychedelics. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Yeah. That's, I had an aunt like that. Yeah, yeah. That's where both my parents were sort of coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went to a lot of like storefront churches and things like that, which that's how I ended up playing music. Mm-hmm. Um, cause they all had like electric bands in the, the church. churches. Did? Yeah. And my dad was a really great guitar player and he was always the guitar player in the band and you know, so at a pretty young age, I was kind of thinking, that's where I, I want to be on the stage too. That's that's the spot, you know. And uh, I think I was probably 13 when I first uh, tried my hand at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. You you've got kind of that like classic like rock and roll story, like you know, kind of coming out of like you know. Jerry Lee Lewis playing in the Pentecostal yeah, church. Yeah, and... yeah, I often compare myself to Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah, but I mean, that's, that probably is the... Not yeah, that. Yeah. probably definitely is a big part of the draw toward the, like, primitive rock and roll. Well, and those kinds of... The, the idea of the Baptist church, they, I mean, they... A lot of those churches sort of related to that were trying to be the punk rock of Christianity in, in their way in that they strip it down and remove all the unnecessary shit. Yeah, You know, yeah. they wanted to get out of the iconography. They didn't want stained glass. They didn't want organs and statues and all of that stuff. And not any kind of music except the human voice in, in the Baptist church, right? Oh, think, yeah, yeah. One of those churches, maybe it's Church of God or Church of Christ. Yeah, one of them, and they do like the like kind of the mountain singing where mm-hmm. they have, you know, it could even be it could be in whatever key everybody's just comfortable in. It's just mm-hmm. the tensions are what's important. Right. And they do this like shape note singing to where yeah. you know, you sing all the triangle notes and I'll sing all the round notes and it, it all works out. Yeah, I, I that's kind of that stuff's kind of cool. I mean, I. You know, I have a mixed relationship with organized religion. You know, if I separate myself from the dogma, I can enjoy it as a cultural thing. Like, I went to my grandmother and grandfather's funeral in the same southern primitive Baptist church in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And they have an elder up there. He's not even a priest or anything like that. And he just leads the singing and or singing those, like, kind of classic kind of farm Christian songs about gathering by the river. Red River Valleys and things, yeah. That's that's pretty, you know. And he's up there. He's he's rocking into it, you know. Like yeah. he's he's like it's not this, you know, kind of uh, reserved thing that you get when, in what I grew up in the Catholic Church, where everything's very, you know, stoic and um, uptight, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, all those rockabilly guys and rock and roll guys are definitely uh, borrowing heavily from from that catalog. Yeah, it's like. I think the story is, you know, you you trans you transfer it from being about God to being about a girl. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. That's so, crazy. Lady God, is that by any chance short for Lady Godiva, or is it unconnected? No, it's it's a a convenient sort of uh, search engine <laughs> device oh, that yeah? yeah we come up right next to Lady Gaga and Lady Godiva and. Uh, you know, that's pretty good company, if you mm-hmm. ask me. Yeah. Well, the Lady Godiva thing's kind of cool. Like, what, what was her story? I mean, I, I don't remember why she was riding the horse naked, but it was some kind of a, a statement. Yeah, I don't know why she was either. I should... 
we could get Google familiar that. with that. Yeah. Um, if you really wanted to. Yeah, she was. What do you think the Lady Godiva story is? Just so we can fill um, about two seconds while I look it up. Um, I'm sh- maybe she was protesting the Crusades or something. I like um, that idea. That's your anti-war protest yeah. thing. I think there's some subconscious thread running through it. She was an 11th century Anglo-Saxon noblewoman who, according to legend, dating back at least to the 13th century, rode naked, only covered in her long hair, through the streets of Coventry in order to gain a remission of the oppressive taxation imposed by her husband on his tenants. The name Peeping Tom for Voyeur originates from later versions of this legend in which a man named Tom had watched her ride and was struck blind or dead. Oh, my. So she was like a tea partier. Yeah. And she was also rebelling against her own husband. She thought her husband was being um, unfair to his tenants in that feudal system and was trying to get him, was embarrassing him, shaming him into... Oh, so she's like a socialist. Yeah. Yeah. We're, I was just talking about that situation with my my mother, like how that whole the whole feudal thing, you know, that was like some guy owned some land, and mm-hmm. if you and he like for whatever reason somehow he squatted on that land and built a castle, or maybe he took over some old Roman thing that was there, and you know he's basically just like a gangster, and he's he's sitting on that, you know, before they were the lords that you think of as Downton Abbey. I mean, he's just the guy that a bunch of other dudes have allowed to be the chieftain or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And then all these people live on his land. They're his, his um, serfs or his vassals. They're like kind of his tenant farmers. And they are allowed to farm his land. And then they give him taxes in the form of like some of the stuff they grow or some of their animals. And that, and they have to fight for him if he goes to war against any other dudes around there. It's kind of interesting, and they go from that be, that sort of kind of middle ages setup to that suddenly being a very respectable thing. You get these upper crust characters out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's um, you know, just sort of another version of believing in your own bullshit. You yeah. know, it's like when <laughs> when you decide, you know, I'm I'm the king of this hunk of land. And you get enough people that go, oh, yeah, yeah. I, guess I don't know how are. the fuck you get people to go along with that shit. I don't know either. I how does know. the one dude get all these other dudes to sort of back him so that then he winds up, like, basically having this, the ability to, like, lean on the, uh, you know, the other people to get them to go along with it? I've always, uh, it, every time I watch anything where that's, whether it's a gangster, you know, like a, a current gangster or an old mafia guy or whatever, I'm like, that's just one dude. Why are all of these people going along with that? Yeah, I don't know. know. I'm trying to figure out how to get people to just like my band. <laughs> That's a good way to bring it, bring it back around. We were digressing yeah. quite no, a bit. No, no. <laughs> Digress all night. <laughs> uh, I, I like your band. Oh, thanks. Do you get, um, how long have you been at it now? So that was the first show, but you've been doing it. You've been writing and kind of playing with them. Yeah, we got together in June, and our first show was in October, and... Yeah, we've been going pretty good since then. How many have you played? Many shows since then? Uh, yeah, I got. We've been doing about one, one a month. So, what does that make four? <laughs> Sounds right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we <laughs> just played our, our fourth show, I guess. Uh, that was at Hardywood with uh, Christy, one of my favorite bands in town. Um, Don't know Christy. Yeah, they're they're pretty new too. Um, they're a, a lady surf rock band. 
let's see. Anyway, uh, they go kind of like OCs type thing, or or more. Uh, uh, they're Dale. coming out of this really cool R&B spot mm-hmm. where um, this girl Maggie that sings for them has this really like gritty, soulful voice, and their songs are really up and poppy and have like cool leads and stuff, but but also really stripped down. You know, mm-hmm. nobody is trying to win any um, acrobatic awards. You know, it's just kind of serve the song, not yourself. Right. That's. That's that, that's definitely my favorite way of going about it, and like I really this I'm very I really romanticize the idea of this recording situation. At, what is it, Moonwalker? Yeah. Studios. Because I've got a room back here. I'm I'm gradually filling with crappy equipment, and like because I want to basically have everything so that people can come over and play with me. I'm about halfway there. I've yeah. got two guitar rigs and half a drum kit in there. But I like I really like that idea of you know just writing together, doing something really direct, and not laboring over a bunch of different um, you know multi-tracking, you yeah. know more than one guitar, more than one bass, you know just keeping it really simple. Yeah, I've never approached a band this way at all because usually it's you know, hey man, we should start a band. Hey man, I have these songs and. You know, you work on those for a while, and then you decide to play some shows, and then you decide to record. And mm-hmm. this, I mean, we <clears throat> we started from the recording, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, that was a that's a totally different approach for me. It's mm-hmm. really, I kind of like it better than than what I've done in the past, because you know, now I don't know. You sort of get at what the song needs, I think, a lot sooner. Um, you Do you know. think that? I mean, you you jumped into a lot of bands and written stuff in the practice space and then gone out and played them, and you've done a lot of that, so you've gotten pretty good at, at now judging what is going to work or what a song needs. Do you think you know it sort of follows from doing it that way? Do you think you would like it as much uh, starting in the studio if you hadn't already had so much of the fly by the seat of your pants? <laughs> I don't know. I mean... Kind of just have to take it one situation at a time. I, you know, I more often than not just join bands that exist. I haven't really haven't started a lot of bands from the ground up. So. So is that that's not just working in the studio, but the fact that you started this band from the very beginning, you didn't join something already in progress. That's another novel aspect of it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've certainly made songs from the ground up but uh yeah i haven't haven't really made the whole you know cosmology and mm-hmm. everything else from the ground up that's an interesting word to use cosmology yeah well it's lady god right <laughs> um, so you're the creator of this universe yeah well the architect yeah i think songwriting is absolutely creating a universe you know whether it's you know why you're choosing the words you're choosing or or you know what what attention does or you know like if you want to stick with it enough to to hold on a note for an amount of time that might be challenging or you know I don't know mm-hmm. making all those decisions is definitely sort of building a little world so how much does does what you think other people are going to think of that go into those decisions or is it really just like you're 
just making yourself happy and like whoever else is playing it with you in the room. Um, I don't know. I don't guess it. I mean, are you real aware of a potential audience when you're writing? I guess is the question. It depends, I guess. Um, you know, when it comes to things like how long a, a part of a song is going to be, I might think about, you know, what a listener expects mm-hmm. um, versus, you know, what I think is, you know, maybe like rewarding patience or, you know, making a twist or something mm-hmm. um, like that. So, I mean,. You know, I guess I can only think of myself as the potential listener and how I would react to Mm -hmm. it if I heard somebody else doing that. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I definitely consider how it's going to play once it's all done. Why did you call the – is the record called The Pebbles? Yeah. Yeah. Why did you call it that? Um, Well, that's uh, that's Sky's idea, and and we try and be very, very democratic with with things like this, but – I think he had walked into this project with the phrase in his head, um, you know, it's it's not the steps along the way, it's the pebble in your shoe mm-hmm. or something like that. And just, you know, he was just really thinking about the, the small thing being, um, you know, the big obstacle mm-hmm. or, or the big gift on the other hand. And and so just I think that was at the heart of why he wanted to play very spare music like that. Um, it's weird. I made a completely different set of assumptions hmm. about this because like I'm aware of like these comps called the Pebbles comps and they're stri- yeah yeah yeah. So I thought you you were sort of invoking that. Yeah, you know? well that I, it's that certainly is our the Pebbles. You know, I mean that's that's sort of our first go. At, at making this music and seeing mm-hmm. how it works and and it is super simple so you're fans of that kind of thing and aware of all that and oh yeah yeah man all i do is is dig around for new old stuff <laughs> <laughs> um no i'm always looking around for for things i didn't know about uh it's really interesting for me to because in general, a lot of people that I talk to that are Richmond musicians, I like I knew them before, and they're somehow connected to some. I mean, they are connected to like a context that I know about. And there's so much has changed. There's so many new bands mm-hmm. around here, and I'm really psyched about it because there really was, for most of my interest in music in Richmond, some very specific, like this. There wasn't a lot of variety. There was kind of jam band stuff over here mm-hmm. and a variety uh, you know sort of a subset of things around vcu punk art damage kind of alterna stuff very specific to richmond and um maybe a little metal you know but not not a whole lot of bands that are really like writing original songs like you know um I mean, a lot of riffing, a lot of compositions, but not a lot of like, you know, people really out there writing songs. You yeah, know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get there's that. There's quite a lot of it <clears throat> now, and I'm like really at a loss. Like, I, I hear bands kind of come across my screen, like I see that they're playing at Balasso, or I just kind of happen up on it, and uh, I've really lost my grasp on, you know, what's going on in Richmond in a, like five or six years. 
which is exciting as shit. You know, I'm really, yeah. I'm really glad that I don't, I can't, I don't know, I, don't, I couldn't list them off on one hand. You know. Yeah. No. As so, soon as I think I know something around here, I find this entirely unknown pocket, unknown to me. Wow. And and I get so happy when I go to see a show and I don't know anybody there. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, like it's totally overwhelming. Also, but to think that there are this many people being creative and this many people being supportive mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, I think speaks really highly of of where we're going as a, you know, we're like a real city. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've always kind of, I mean, we've had the talent, but there, I guess there was always this very limited amount of people who stuck around here and did it, and then a limited amount of people that would pay to go see it. Yeah. You know, and there's definitely a lot more people paying to go see bands. And I, yeah, frequently I'll go to something at the Camel, know nobody there, you know, maybe one person. It's usually Dusty. Yeah. You know, he's, <laughs> he appears a lot of places. Um, same thing with that Broadbury thing. I, I knew Kyle because um, I'd met him when he came over to do this yeah, thing. Yeah. And, well, I met him. I met him once before that, but knew maybe two people in that entire room. That thing. Well, four. Maybe. Sure. But yeah. still, not many. You know, and it's. Yeah, I mean, it's really great. It's like a kind of a thing that I don't know. I almost think that those of us who are as long in the tooth as I am thought might never happen here. Yeah. You know, like, but I think finally New York and these other places have gotten so fucking expensive. Like, maybe you just need to stay in Richmond and. That's true. You know, I had a, I went to the show at Gallery 5 and it was all the, um, like, old guy bands. You know, all the, all the bands that were, that were doing a lot in the 80s. And I got talking to this photographer and he says, well, if you're trying to play music seriously, you're wasting your time here. And I said, well, why do you say that? And he says, well, there's there's no competition here. You need to be in New York. You need to be in L.A. You need to be in at least Chicago. I said, well, I, why <laughs> right. would I, you know, I, that, those are the last places I'd want to go because here, you know, I can I can come up with ideas and I can mm-hmm. set them in motion and, mm-hmm. you know, I can get maybe five or ten people to give a yeah, shit that, that I'm doing it. <laughs> that competition he's talking about is, like, not competition for, like, your actual musical career. It's competition for, like, survival yeah like and just it's, having a it's fucking competition job and... to be the person standing in front of everyone boring them to death yeah you know and that doesn't right really... they burn out they've seen it all like, yeah it's just yet another one of these bands in new york yeah. you know where that but that that's probably my age group you know yeah like the people who who still some still maintain that attitude but like thank yeah. goodness. well this guy was like 60 oh uh, okay you know yeah the 40 the 40 somethings uh well, you know, there's still I guess there are plenty of them that have gotten a shot in the arm by the all the new people mm-hmm. that have come into this town and whatever it is, I'm I'm for it. I'm really digging it, you know? Like it's yeah. So what are you doing with Sound of Music uh these days? You're frequently inviting me to Oh, yeah, yeah. Um so I'm booking there. Um I'm booking shows there and I'm booking the studio there. Um and it just sort of happened by happy accident mm-hmm. i don't know i um i recorded there last year with uh my friend jordan terrence band um and i i played with them for the better part of last year what band is that <clears throat> tarrant 
Um, and uh, the guy that plays organ in that band, Craig, he's a partner at the studio, so mm-hmm. he had some some time kind of banked up. So so anyway, I went and and we recorded an EP there, and you know I got to know all the all the people that worked in the studio and and you know I just got along really great with John the engineer and I liked the way he worked a lot and you know he called me in to do a little bit of this and that down the road and I had seen them have some shows there and so I said well I I like my band to play here you know I want to do one and you know as soon as I got the wheels rolling with that he says well I wonder if you want to just do this all the time and you can just be in charge of shows. And I said, that'd be great. And then he says, I wonder if you want to book the studio too. And I said, I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's like my new job. What's the space like? I have never been in there. What's the, for, for bands playing, they have a little stage in there or is it? Yeah, it's great. It's like, um, it used to be a dance studio. I think it used to be a lot of things, but. Uh, Rich, was it Richmond Ballet at, at one point? It's on the corner of Lombardy and broad yeah right? yeah it's it's right off the corner um yeah it's on 1515 uh west broad street and it's yeah it's got that big tile checkerboard floor mm-hmm. and the mirror along the wall mm-hmm. and uh it's a, the front room is big and open and that's where the bands play and then there's a room uh beyond that where where people track mm-hmm. you know and it's they've got really nice high ceilings and it just sounds really cool in there and uh, then the control room is upstairs, and there's a there's a second um, kind of studio where they do smaller projects and you know um, convert things and and all of that. But um, it's a good spot. We're sort of working on you know figuring out how to use the the potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just. Do you like book it out for other events? Like if somebody wanted to have a. Uh... A wedding. Yeah, I mean, like they certainly <laughs> could. I don't know uh, that we're quite the right atmosphere for a wedding, but um, yeah, people will book um, recitals or um, you know, there's the the next show we're doing. It's kind of like a like a birthday show, um, and and the girl Ashley and the band Woodface is kind of having. You know, food and drinks and stuff like that, and we're gonna start a little bit earlier, so so the people who have kids and mm-hmm. and things can come and you know get out for a change. And do you have like a you, you sell drinks in there? Do you have like um well we've been doing BYOB shows so far. I think eventually we want to get to a point where we can sell beer and I don't know what else. Probably not like hard liquor. All right. I don't know. It's, it's like art gallery type yeah, setup. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Beer we want to kind of do mm-hmm. the the banquet thing, because um, it would make it easier for us to to pay the bands and mm-hmm. um, you know for us not to work for free. That'd be nice. Do too. you cover? Do you charge a cover for y- most yeah, of the shows? Yeah, yeah. We've been doing like five to eight dollars per show, depending on you know if there's an out of town band or. You know, if we think a lot of people are going to come or, mm-hmm. or whatever, I don't know. However, you make up your mind about those things. Five dollars mm-hmm. really isn't that much anymore. Um, no, it should be. The biggest uh, obstacle for me paying five dollars is usually I don't have any cash. Yeah, yeah. So you have to have the the swipe. Yeah. Thing set up. Um, so what is it? What do you do? You feel like 
you, Richmond kind of chose you. You didn't really choose to live here, but you've uh, you now are choosing it and. It's been really good for me. Um, you know, I haven't, I mean, I sort of stopped believing in accidents, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. when I got here because it was like, well, you know, when I got here, somebody put in a word for me at Bamboo and at Mama Zoo, and Bamboo called me, and, you know, I started working there, and I went back to school and I met my husband and I started playing all these bands and I just, you know, I, I got to, I don't know. I just, I, I keep growing and, and it's just been a really positive change for me to come here. And, you know, I was feeling very lost Mm -hmm. before that. Not, not really sure. I mean, I spent a lot of time here feeling lost too, but, um, (laughs) yeah, I finally feel like I kind of know what I'm doing. I think that's I think that's awesome that you know I, and I've I've talked about this quite a bit and I mean this is for some reason for such a long time like been the assumption of so many people that were my friends and peers and it was even my like I I went away to New York myself I was one of those people that thought I had to as soon as I finished school I had to go someplace cooler you know and I came back here and then I went to California and I came back here and. And for a long, you know, many of those years, I thought that's me failing, mm-hmm. you know, and then more and more, like I actually chose, like I worked my way back here from Minnesota because I really wanted to be here because it was, you know, I saw that that, that potential, like I, I knew for me, like I had never given this place a real chance, you know, it being where I grew up. I had the attitude about Richmond that you did about the uh, area out there in Tennessee. Yeah, well, you know. yeah, I think it's natural to kind of look at your hometown as a hellhole <laughs> you know a, a thing to be escaped uh, mm-hmm. rather than you know but it's awesome that there are so many people like you now that see this as a destination as a place they want to go yeah and like and that's really what it takes for any place to be that is that a bunch of people have to decide that they're going to do it sure yeah you know? And it's a, you're such a good example of like what I have offhandedly said a lot here is that we're so used to bitching and moaning about what's not in Richmond. And mm-hmm. like, why don't you just make that thing? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's the thing. Uh, and, and once you identify what it is that, that you think the city's lacking, you can, you can make it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, all you have to, I mean, I don't know. You just, uh. I really think that you can speak things into being. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you if you're genuinely excited about it, uh, you'll you'll get people behind you. It's just like feudalism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what it is. You just got to get people psyched up, you know, and don't give them a chance to doubt it. Yeah. You know, just just get the get the inertia going, get the ball rolling. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's um, I'm certainly like inspired to do that kind of thing. This is about the most I have energy for outside of my oh, job, sure. yeah. you know, just sitting down and turning on mics once in a while. But I'm, I am trying to add on to that, you know, start playing music again and all that. I bought a decent guitar yeah. for the first time. <clears throat> That's good. I always did I, see. And I maybe, I always approached being in bands from a, I want to be in a band kind of thing. Not like I want to write songs or I have any ideas. <laughs> like yeah. I, I want to be in this group of people and we I want to start and we'll just see what happens. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I know what you mean. Um right before 
Lady God got started, uh, Nate and I, my husband Nate and I started, um, you know, we had been recording a few songs and, you know, as soon as we had finished one in my head, I'd be, you know, thinking, well, I want to play that in front of people. That's great. You know, I, I totally want to, I don't know. I mean, it's maybe the, the weird artist instinct to mm-hmm. where you go, oh, I made this really, really great thing. I want to get it out there and show people so they can see that I'm a hack and I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I definitely, uh, I guess, first have the urge to write the song and then have the, the urge to make the band. Yeah, I gotta shut myself up when I'm writing stuff because I go straight to thinking about like I'm a like I've got a piece of a song and I've started working on it. And I'm thinking about you know the the finished playing it in front of people thing. Uh-huh. Like I, I that's still such a, a weird draw to me to be a player like in that. Yeah. You know, and I really I don't really want to be operating from that. Like it's like my my um. My practice, it's almost like some spiritual practice or some workout, is for me to just do stuff without any need for an audience or need for feedback. Yeah, and like, yeah. And it's it's really weird to do that with music. I mean, especially like rock and roll. It's always been so tied up in me in engaging with other people, whether it's like um, being in a band or being in an audience, you know, and like yeah, well, all of that asses to elbows and like sweat and all that stuff. I wonder if that's not even a, a harder thing to achieve now, though, because I feel like we're such a rewards-centered people now mm-hmm. to where, you know, I'm kind of sitting around at my kitchen counter going, oh, I took this picture of, you know, of my lunch. Who likes it? Right, you know? right. And, uh, you know, so definitely to think, oh, I, I made this thing with my band who's who's liking it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and i don't think it's there's nothing wrong with that but it gets into a compulsive thing mm-hmm. you know certainly for me like i think of i mean i've had you know i've looked a lot into like what addiction is you know yeah. and and like you know they give this rat they put a electrode in a rat's brain that and like it hits a pellet like a, a button and it gives it a pellet and it gets a little uh, shock and like the pleasure part of its brain um, and it gets a pellet and it eats it then they take the pellet away and it just keeps hitting this thing to get the shock you know because it just likes that yeah. stimulation you know and so much of this pushing buttons i mean this instant gratification thing can get you really into a reptilian cortex thing where you're just like stuck on the stimulation yeah you know yeah. and and the more you you do that you actually create like wired pathways in your brain you know so (laughs) i've had a lot of experience with that so like i'm always i'm trying to encourage myself to do stuff for not gratification which is great because i get very little feedback from this yeah well that's what i do love about (laughs) writing especially about handwriting um you know because i write a lot of bad songs like i think most of the writing i do is this pretty (laughs) detestable (laughs) but you know just to sit around and and just make those weird connections with words and and you sort of you know you find those little echoes and i I don't know i think that hits the same pleasure center as you know Mm -hmm. but when you i mean 
like I think of that like and I have a hard time with that like you know that that requires actually a lot more patience and discipline to I mean there is some endorphin you can get going when you actually start working yeah but that but that step for me of crossing the threshold from inactivity of like just taking in stuff like watching movies or yeah you know whatever being passive that that step and this it's not even a big step but for my brain it's a huge one um, it feels really daunting like I have noticed I'm, I have to like force myself to do it then once I'm doing it I'm getting that you know, there's this little reward in there and it's a healthy one. Yeah. You know, no, I used to get so mad at my husband cause he would say action precedes motivation. <laughs> Anytime that I would complain that I wasn't doing enough creatively and I would just be like, <laughs> Oh, just shut up. <laughs> you know? And then yeah, suddenly, <laughs> yeah, suddenly I realized it's true. You just, the, the only secret to doing it is just doing it, you know, whether that's, you know, your laundry or, or painting or, it whatever, is. whatever kind of crazy idea you have building a record pressing plant in Richmond. Um, it truly is. It is a fucking, for some reason, that is a revolutionary idea. And it is such a simple one. It is. It like, really <laughs> just do it. Yeah. Like a Nike co-opted that, but it's a, like a fact. Like you, you can think about things and talk about things and whatever, but nothing happens. Not You don't change. You don't learn. You don't create. You don't grow. You don't succeed. You don't nothing until you just take that action yeah and i talked to so many people that make art and the ones that realize that it's it's like they found a religion mm-hmm. you know to where you go oh you know i just started doing it and then it just started happening mm-hmm. and and that's that's all it is mm-hmm. that's all it ever is i believe like you in that that there aren't any accidents and and i do think you also when you're taking certain actions and you're and you're mindful of all of the stuff that's sort of associated with the thing that you're doing that these things just start appearing you know Mm -hmm. it's like i mean it's not it sounds superstitious to say you ask the universe for something but you really by asking that you create your own inquiry into it so that you're aware of the answers that are all around you you know because answers are there already you're just not seeing them so when you you start doing that thing suddenly you're it's like your receptors are on yeah you know? no it's crazy i I've, I've joked around for years that you know i'm a really firm believer in coincidence mm-hmm. you know just <laughs> because i mean you know i like think about oh i don't i don't like believing in things i just think that's so you know ridiculous but you know then then i found myself now i think more superstitious than ever you mm-hmm. know that i'm like oh i gotta go out and like talk somebody into something. I'm going to wear my grandmother's ring. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'll be like, come on, lady, I need your help. You know, mm-hmm. and it is like sort of like a sign charm to all these things. And I'm like, okay, you know, if I do things in this order, I don't even know, man. You know, I just have these days where I feel crazy. Like, you know, if I have to, if I have to get something done, I feel like there's some kind of, I got to talk myself into it somehow. Well, you know, <laughs> what you were saying about getting out of the city and going out to record at, uh, at that place and like you're getting out of the normal pathways that you're in yeah it's like the circuit board and like alan watts says you know when you you get out in nature there's no straight lines there are no right angles you know everything's squiggly you know and i think that a lot a, a lot of allowing for what you might call superstition or spirituality or any of those kinds of things they're they're not so much in a belief in a specific thing as a non 
you know, belief and the limitations of reason and logic and straight lines and right angles, you know, that sometimes you can get out of the box, you know, and just allow for other things. And it's kind of no surprise or no coincidence that that is called inspiration. You know, it's like you're, you're taking in a breath, you're inspired, you know, um, there's some other spirit that's available to you. It's the spirit of the unknown. It's the spirit of the unboxed, the spirit of the uncategorized, cataloged, you know, and that is a real thing, you know, but we can get real stuck in what we think we know, you know, and, and just how all of that stuff fits into columns and categories. And it doesn't allow for, you know, novelty it doesn't allow for creativity as yeah. much. Yeah, I think I see what you mean. I mean, with working at the Moonwalker especially and working with, with Lady God specifically, you know, I think it was skies of my goal to take a more feminine approach to music mm-hmm. than either of us had before. And, you know... What's that mean? Well, here we go. Um, <laughs> to think in terms of right angles and to think in terms of, of strictly logic, you know, and why some things should work. And even, you know, with the difference between analog recording and digital recording, that I'm not going to go shake, 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 shake mm-hmm. on a maraca and then cut that out and pop it in. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Right. Rather, you know... If it sounds like it's a person making that music, you know, like sometimes those mistakes are the best parts of right. all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I'm not correcting my voice when it's wrong, whatever mm-hmm. wrong is, then I'm sort of getting at the truer nature of the sounds that are supposed to be coming out of me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's what we sound like. That's so I want to clarify this, to sound like. the sort of the idea of putting <clears throat> this shit on the grid is kind of more of a masculine thing of like, we're just, gonna, you know, we're going to do four, four time and, and the maraca is going to come down on, on these beats and you know, being more I mean, organic is the more, is the more feminine way. One could argue. I, um, no, I'm, I'm just checking, seeing if that is your argument. I don't disagree with it. I'm just, yeah. You know. I mean, it's, it's the empirical versus the intuitive. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. precisely. Um, so I think we're trying to, you know, trying to do less of the forcing things mm-hmm. into the small area where, where we think they belong. Mm-hmm. Um, Whether it's genre or time signatures or scales or whatever. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah let, let it all just sit around and stew. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. I, I like that idea. And, I, you know, I have a... I resist like too too much getting into an either or binary thing with oh, masculine yeah. and feminine, mm-hmm. um, but I do think for whatever reason like Tom um, this is Tom Joseph Campbell was talking uh, on one of these things I was watching and he was talking about how men you know we have kind of when it comes to the reproductive thing it's sort of like we have one job and then we have to be put to work. After that, we have to be civilized and we have to be like um, made use of. Otherwise, we're too wild and we fuck everything up. Like, you know, primitive primal societies, the the man is scarred, is cut, is, you know, is is told, you know, you are no longer this wild thing. You are a service to the tribe, you know, because you need a job uh, other than just um, fertilizing the woman. You know, you need to we need, you know, otherwise, if we don't give you a job, you're going to fuck it all up 
mm-hmm. sort of was what is what he's saying. But the woman is what it's all about, you know. That, you know, on the, on the most fundamental level, the um, propagation of the species, you know, that like that's the vessel of life, you know. And there is no need for the woman to be put into the category because there is no other more hallowed job than being, you know, the creator of life, you know. So you don't have these coming of age rituals and, you know, as often and in as many tribes, you know, not where like, you know, they take the boy out in the woods and they whip his ass and they put, you know, they burn him with things and they cut his face and stuff and because he has to be, you know, sort of uh, tamed. Mm-hmm. But you don't tame the woman. You leave the woman wild, you know, hmm. that the, that the, that, that, that essence, that, that thing that, you know, that source thing is respected, you know, and I think we could find a lot of contradictions for that in Western society. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's been a desire to contain that primal thing and, you know, a, a fear of it as we've gotten into more of an industrial society, like in, you know, the last couple hundred years, whenever that all began, when we started living on, you know, artificial schedules instead of natural schedules. But I think that we all have like, I mean, I am just as drawn to that organic. I want the organic thing too, even though I am, I'm trained for reason. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, I think men are forced into reason at a young age more than women are. You know, like you're told as a boy, when you start crying or you're having some emotion to like, shut that up, you know, take that and do this with it, you know, rub some dirt on it, get back in the game, yeah, yeah. you know. So it, there's always this redirection of your natural kind of thing. And you don't get that, like, as much, at least the girls that I grew up with, they weren't told as much as I was, like, not to be the way that they were, you know. And so I think that if maybe the, the feminine thing could be, like, the natural Thing. And yeah. the masculine thing in a lot of times is the artificial thing, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, the desire to try to control that stuff. And what do you think? That's that was a lot. Of, yeah, yeah. I no, <laughs> I mean, I I could see that. Um, you know, I also hesitate to sort of get into drawing lines between, you know what is masculine and what is feminine because I, you know, I just don't, you know, I don't feel like the most sacred thing I can do is have kids, you know, <laughs> right. in fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's definitely not. Right. Um, Physically have kids. Yeah. But you're um, having kids all the time when you're writing. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, it's the creative process, I guess, you know, yeah. that we've abstracted a yeah. whole lot. Yeah. But go ahead. Um, Sorry. But you know, I mean, whatever. I don't. I don't think that those concrete roles really serve anyone well. No. Um. You know, I think that's, you know, why we why we swallow pills and watch Netflix for six hours at a stretch. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, among other things. Yeah, it's and and like I'm not saying that this is what I believe. I was really trying to sort of paraphrase what Joseph Campbell that that. The truth I see in it is is that like you know in order to make sense out of the world when 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 humans try to like put reason on things and they start trying to please tell me that didn't just stop okay it's still going um, 
you know, we in order for us to make sense of things, in order to like be able to communicate, in order to plan, in order to build, and all of this kind of stuff, we we've come up with the tool of like saying this or that, yeah. this or that. If this, then that. The whole reason thing, mm-hmm. like it's it's what computer language is based on. It's what logic in general is based on. You know, you 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 believe this one assumption, you go to the next decision, and like you stop noticing a whole lot of other things. You know, you stop anything that doesn't fit into that um, kind of framework becomes insignificant, you know, and um, I'm I'm really attracted to the accidents, the things that happen that that like because they are out like I try to pay attention to those things that are just randomly um, offering themselves. Like, and that's why I've always gone into music with no no uh, learning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. That was uh, I was going to draw the same parallel because I've found myself in the odd position of being surrounded by a lot of, you know, music scholars, Mm -hmm. you know, world-class people, people who have devoted their life to to studying this thing and making it a real craft, Mm -hmm. you know, and here I come kind of dragging my guitar out of the swamp, I feel Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. most of the time, and I wonder, uh, when you approach something that way, does it take you know, does it take the magic out? And I watch, and sometimes, you know, even even my husband is, you know, somebody that I consider a really accomplished musician. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that make him sort of stop and look are the things that don't fit into the framework. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I, you know, always always try and go for that. You know, um, I'm really great. Yeah, I'm grateful for that time I worked at Carey Street because I got a chance to see guys like Nate and that whole gravy band playing together do you did you ever see them when he was playing with them yeah i saw them uh reunited a couple times and those those guys were not doing what i like had gotten really hung up on as being cool stuff but they were all very good musicians and Mm -hmm. they were very versatile and they were they really had a good time and i really i always worked on wednesday night when that band was playing and i've i've seen them i've probably seen them play like 52 times or something like yeah. that. I mean, I saw him every Wednesday night for at least a year, mm-hmm. something. Um, and I, I really, I do appreciate that kind of thing. And I think it's just there's two different kinds of people. Even though I hate to do that, yeah. but like, <laughs> you know, there are there are people who operate more and they find wonder by going through the process, like math. Uh-huh. You know, and that's how they learn music. Yeah. You know, they learn it by the math way. And then there are people who learn music the language way. And like, you know, the way that you are as a baby pick up English. Oh, I was know? just talking to my dad about the same thing just two days ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that you don't, you know, well, he said he doesn't approach music that way either. That it's just you hear something that you like and you repeat it. Mm-hmm. And then you, you just keep doing that and you mm-hmm. keep doing that. And you know, maybe you start off trying to sound like Loretta Lynn's guitar player, mm-hmm. but, you know, eventually you're you, so it's yeah. going to sound like you. Right, you develop your own voice, as yeah. they say. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, and, and like, that's just, I, I think the the conceit I had of, like, coming into being creative early on was, like, that's the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. But no, that's just the way that I, that's the kind of person I am. Yeah. I'm, I learn by language. I learn by mimicry, and, and then... Uh, 
you know, putting together all the things that I dig that I've heard into my own voice. Yeah. You know, I just can't, I don't have the patience to sit down and learn it as a um, science, you know. Yeah. But I can go back and go, oh, so that's how you write what I just learned to say. Like I am starting to be, you know, I got some ability to read music. Don't feel any need to do it. But like after learning it to say it, I can... I could, that now makes sense to me. But if you sat me down and and that was where you wanted to start, like forget about it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I do know that happens to me all the time because I'll sit down and be like, okay, I want to be Mick Jagger for this one, and mm-hmm. well, I look at me, I cannot be Mick Jagger <laughs> ever. <laughs> so um, I'm I'm only gonna be me, no matter you know who I'm who I'm thinking about when I'm making a a song or a part or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's the most revolutionary thing to get at these days. The the most badass, rebellious, like awesome thing you can do is be as much you as you possibly can. Like, yeah. re, you know, remove what isn't you. You know, take like, you know, always just. And one of the ways to do that is like the one of the ways to be the most unique as an artist or a musician is to do exactly what you like, no matter what anybody else says. Yeah. You know, then you you just can't help but be original. Yeah. And you know. But you have to fight for that. You mm-hmm. really do, because I mean, you you start doing that, and it's strange where people will challenge you on it. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know. I, I have had to say like, hey, <laughs> I'm gonna make my art the way I want to make my art, mm-hmm. and if you don't like it, fuck off. Yeah. You know, which is a strange position to to find yourself in but but so awesome to have yeah. that, that confidence and security no say, it's great know. man like learning to say fuck you every now and then is mm-hmm. uh you know fuck you i want to do what you tell me yeah exactly <laughs> just gotta check something really quick <laughs> all right we're good um uh yeah that 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 i keep coming back to that and like i just started all of this stuff I think is like different kinds of meditation mm-hmm. too. It like people often want to meditate, but you just can't bring yourself to sit down for 15 minutes and not do anything else. Yeah. You know, and that's what creating is. It's all, all these other things. You have to just stop with the, you know, the constant stimulation of other people's stuff mm-hmm. and start listening to yourself. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't even have to result in making a song or writing a book or, you know, anything like that that's entertainment or art, it could just be that you are starting to listen to your own voice, you know, mm-hmm. just getting to know yourself and your, you know, whatever it is you got to to add to your own awareness and then add to whatever's going on around you. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thankful for you to come and add to this thing. Sure. Yeah, you know, really appreciate it. Yeah. And I look forward to, uh, when's the next time, Lady God's? Oh, uh, we don't have anything till the end of February. Uh, we're playing on the 26th of February at the Camel with Blackwater Gold and this band from North Carolina called the Nude Party. Um, they're really great, uh, kind of laughing, sort of organ-driven, kooky 60s. Laughing like the roll. show that uh, yeah uh-huh. yeah Rowan I sort Martin's of laughing. Yeah, I see uh, I see all those sets when I hear this music, just all the. And are there like daisies and and like dayglow kind of? Yeah, it's uh-huh. it's the paisley swirl sounding ah, band. Cool. Yeah. 
Do you want to take us out on some Lady God here? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, Was that your? I'll, I'll play a tune for you. All right. Uh, this is this is eleven eleven. Uh, we recorded this at the Virginia Moonwalker, and it was mixed at the Sound of Music. All right, roll with it. with our usual theme music Stopover Bombay by Alice Coltrane. We'll just keep letting Lady God play in the background. I never did get the name of that. Maybe she said the name of the song before. She probably did. Um, just so you guys know, they are Lady God is playing February 26th at the Camel with uh, Blackwater Gold, The Nude Party, and Thick Modine. More bands I never have heard of. What does that mean? What? No offense, Curtis, but what you haven't heard of could fill a warehouse. Huh? Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, so you guys, I hope you uh, have enjoyed this hour and a half of musings and conversation and music. And uh, I hope you enjoy it enough to support it. This uh, podcast is, of course, my gift to you in the city of Richmond and all peoples everywhere. 
But if uh, you want to, um, you know, show your appreciation, you can go on the Tantric was what the fuck Tantric Conversation website www.tantricconversation.com. I probably don't have to say www anymore. But there's a spot there where you can make a PayPal donation, and uh, you know, ten dollars is great. You can, everybody can afford that. It'd be very nice of you to put that in there. Um, thanks to those of you who do and have uh, made contributions and given feedback. Uh, it is much appreciated, very, very much appreciated. So uh, keep it up and keep listening and uh, stay tuned. Uh, next week, I have Emily Skinner, former. Churchill girl, grew up, born and raised, Richmond, now a Broadway star-ish, star-like person, um, who was in town a while ago around January, and we sat down and talked, and then uh, get some, I don't know, I gotta schedule some more of these, so yeah, sniffle, talk to y'all later.